Pakistan suffers from the worst floods in more than a decade. At least a thousand people have died in two months of torrential monsoon rains. How much is climate change to blame? And can the country cope with the resulting humanitarian crisis? I'm Rob Matheson. You're listening to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyze, and help define major global stories. Okay, let's bring in our guests. In Lahore, we have Dawar Bhatt. He's an environment policy analyst. Also in Lahore is Sarah Hayat. She's a lawyer specializing in climate change policy. And in Islamabad, Peter Opov, who's the head of International Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies in Pakistan. A warm welcome to you all. Peter, I want to start with you. I know that you've worked in several different countries dealing with situations like this in preparation for them. How does this situation in Pakistan compare with what you've seen before? Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me on the on the program. Um, yes, uh, indeed, I have been working for the Red Cross Red Crescent for a long time. Uh, the situation we see here now in Pakistan is, uh, I would say, unprecedented. Uh, we have been working in many flood operations or earthquake operations. Uh, the floods here are, are really devastating and the force that it has. Uh, people were clearly not uh, prepared, I would say, for such a thing. Nobody can be pre- prepared for such a weather event, uh, and the impact is, is, is huge, it's huge. And this is something that uh, we will see for a very long time to come. Uh, the situation is very dire in Pakistan. Mm. Dawa, Pakistan has faced severe floods before. It's had extreme weather on, on both sides of the scale, if you like. Uh, this is something significantly different. What is different this time? Well, uh, for starters, uh, I think one of the significant things that we've seen is the change in the patterns of the monsoon. And uh, this is this has happened over the last three, four years. Uh, the monsoon has shifted towards the south of the country and an increase in rainfall patterns where the natural drainage does not allow the water to go out. It just accumulates. And you have these massive areas, about 10% of the country, and this is specifically for the south of the country, where 10% of the entire landmass of the country is underwater. So it's significant. It's um, What has been said is that it's similar to the last 2010 super floods. But in terms of the concentration of issues, it's largely the south of the country. Sarah, even if Pakistan and the authorities had enough warning of what was coming, is there really much that they could have done to try to ameliorate the situation and, and at least ease it for some people? I know. um, I don't think, I think there's a knee-jerk reaction to sort of start blaming the government when something like this happens. But for Pakistan, the kind of floods that we're experiencing, even though we had warning that floods were coming, and at some level, perhaps the government was also preparing for it. But I don't think we could have prepared for what we're seeing right now. Um, Especially like, because like Davar said, the monsoon rains have been unprecedented. We've experienced um, generally, Pakistan gets about four cycles, three to four cycles of monsoon rains, and this time we're getting around eight, and we're probably going to get more also. Um, and that said, uh, so and there are a bunch of reasons why why the floods are so extreme this time, and I don't think the government could really have prepared for this kind of catastrophe and destruction. You say that there's a bunch of reasons. Can you just run through what those reasons might be, in addition, as you say, to the, the climate change that has been experienced? Yeah, absolutely. So think of it like a pyramid if you're found of, of reasons. And the foundational reason, I'd say, is climate change. Um, with climate change, with global warming, 
your clouds your clouds can hold more water vapor, which means that when they leak this torrential rain, and which is why there's more erratic rainfall and uh, spread across and spread across larger regions this time, and then of course changing weather patterns because of climate change, which means more monsoon rains, more torrential rain. And then we have glaciers. So Pakistan or this region of the, of the world, we host the third largest glacial ice mass in the world after the North and South Poles. And with climate change, because glaciers are melting um, and, and receding, we're seeing a lot of flash floods. We're seeing a lot of glacial lake outburst floods. And, and all that water is coming down south into the country. Um, and then on top of that, uh, uh, and so, the, so this is like the first layer would be climate change amongst the causes. The second, I'd say, would be poor developmental planning. Uh, and, and I believe we are to blame entirely for that, really. We've been making, uh, we've been building, we've been constructing on river banks and river shoulders, basically just obstructing the natural flow of water. And, and, and nature will win in the end, and that's what's happened. So um, the kind of destruction that we're experiencing is, is part and parcel because of poor uh, development planning, because of permits to build in areas or, that are sensitive to flood. We've, there's been a lot of farming on floodplains um, that shouldn't have been there to begin with. And then other reasons for the impacts of uh, these kind of floods are, of course, governance challenges, a constant uh, sort of um, strife between the center, that's Islamabad and provinces on who's going to be responsible. And um, a lot of sort of, um, there's, there's a, there's a, um, uh, it seems like there's a, um, a lot of government departments will keep shifting burden to other government departments and sort of shirk responsibility. I think that has done a lot to harm in flood relief efforts and in and for the preparation of floods. Mm. And that said, the political instability over the last couple of months in Pakistan has definitely, definitely exacerbated the situation for us. The nation was, has been so occupied between um, the political sort of has been so occupied and so polarized between political parties and the upcoming general elections that our priorities were amiss. Maybe, and, and, and I say this, there's a huge maybe, but maybe had our priorities been more aligned, we could have prepared better for these floods. Mm. Tawar, the monsoon usually is vital for agriculture and for the growth of crops and, and the income, of course, for millions of farmers. Um, given the, the scale of what we've been seeing, how much of an economic imp impact is this going to have on the farming community in Pakistan, which, of course, is, is one of the key elements of the country's economy? So initial estimates uh, paint a very bleak picture. Uh, there are a billion dollars worth of crop losses, uh, nearly a billion when you a billion more when you consider livestock and tractor losses because those are key inputs or key ownerships uh, within the uh, farming communities. And then of course uh, the crop that was standing, it's not just that's been damaged. For the next three to four months, this is a period when the wheat crop is sown. In October, the Sindh province has a wheat crop sown, which is uh, then harvested in February and March. That won't be done this year. It, it won't be possible to prepare the land by then. Then there is a cycle for the sugarcane crop as well. The cotton crop, which is a big, big need for the country because we're a textile manufacturing country, uh, you have these huge textile mills that need that crop, will now have to import that as well. So when you put all of that together, along with infrastructure losses and in, which are homes, roads, bridges, the minimum initial ass ass assessment says $5 to $8 billion. 
and uh, this is just the immediate damage when you think in terms of rehabilitation when you think in terms of uh, getting these uh, lands in order getting the existing canal system to work because it's been in it's been uh, badly damaged as well whenever you have dikes being broken when you have uh, in places there the entire barrages have been swept away mm. uh, the small dams have been swept so it, it will take a, a long while uh, and uh, to just to give you a sort of uh, estimate from 2010 when it didn't rain this much it was largely a riverine flood uh, the, the estimate or the end what the flood commission of the government came ahead with was 40 billion dollars worth of losses so uh, pakistan was already uh, as sir has mentioned it's a political crisis and it's also in a situation where the economy has been doing poorly mm. uh, we have a current deficit and all of that together is uh, becoming a big big problem if you look at the near term future mm. peter i want to ask you about the amount of responsibility that organizations like yours are having to carry in this situation um sara was making the point earlier that nobody could have been prepared for the scale of what was happening least of all the government although whether or not they actually knew it was coming how much of a burden is falling on organizations like yours compared to the level of response that you're seeing from uh, government organizations No I I would I wouldn't really call it uh, a burden because I think a burden is a very negative word as well um what what we do as humanitarian uh, actors and uh, organizations is working with governments working with communities uh to make sure that people are better prepared for it so and that that is our role um yes of course we would rather do uh, other development programs of course because that would mean that actually everything works perfect but it is the the preparedness that we are working with with the communities that we also work with the government what to do as a disaster risk reduction uh what to do in case of a disaster how do you respond uh for example how do you uh do first aid everybody learning first aid but also like if there's a flood what is the reaction that you have to do how do you get to higher grounds if there's earthquakes what what do you do so and in that is the role that we play and um again as it's nothing to do with uh people are prepared or not prepared as as this as uh, my colleague panel members also said this was unprecedented uh, there's nothing you can do about it um it's uh, and it is indeed a combination of rain and and uh the warming of 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 the earth and then the melting of the ice on the glaciers so it is a combination of but we as humanitarian uh, actors humanitarian uh, organizations are there to assist and we do that uh, whatever it is So now for the for the crops um as been said lots of crops have been lost areas are still inundated and it will take a long time it might take weeks months before all the water has uh, receded and that means that crops are completely lost so what we do as we crossword crescent is actually coming in to assist the people as well in their livelihoods uh in our appeal that we just launched uh, for Pakistan uh we do have a cash component in it but actually is to assist the people in their livelihoods to start small businesses to buy tools to buy seeds so the moment that the water is, uh, has receded that they can start planting again of course we're getting towards the winter now but uh, we we help wherever we can and what we can do mm. sir i referred earlier to the climate change minister sherry roman she's also been quoted as saying we need better planning and sustainable development on the ground we need climate resilient crops as well as structures that makes sense but this is not a situation that pakistan is new to it has suffered this kind of thing before why hasn't this been done before 
Why hasn't uh, flood relief been done before or sustainable planning not been done before? Well, both, because, as I say, the situation in Pakistan is, to a certain extent, not new, despite the fact that this is on an unprecedented scale. The one would imagine that some effort would have been made to bring in the methods that uh, Sherry Rahman is talking about, and yet she seems to be suggesting that it has taken something like this to put the thought into people's heads. Um, what she was suggesting is that Pakistan needs to co constantly sort of prepare for and adapt to climate change, which is something we're doing to the best of our abilities. But at this point, I think now that push has come to shove, I really must say it out loud, we aren't really responsible for climate change. Pakistan isn't. We're just on the receiving end of its impacts, really. And which is why these floods have become, are feeling so personal to us because um, we contribute less than 0.8% to global greenhouse gas emissions. That's literally negligible. And yet, look at what's happening. We've lost more than 1,000 lives since June. Um, 33 million people are affected. One in seven Pakistanis is sleeping uh, outside in the open. And um, literally, houses, livelihood, livestock, there's, more, there's almost 800 thousand livestock have died. And um, like we've been talking about, I'll reiterate, I don't think we could have prepared for these floods. I think what we could have done is maybe we could have had better early warning systems. Maybe we could have had um, evacuation plans ready. And yes, I think that is a, um, uh, it's, it's poor calculation on the part of the uh, um, provincial uh, disaster management authorities and the national disaster management authority. However, if, if you'd like me to talk a little about what Pakistan is doing for climate change, we are, I want to stress, we are doing whatever we can with, you know, with the political instability and economic instability and the kind of population we have. We're the fifth most populated country in the world. Sometimes for the government, climate change is on the back burner. It shouldn't be. I'm definitely not saying it should be, but it does happen. It just sort of slides to the back. But we are investing in making climate resilient or, or rather water um, uh, um, uh, climate resilient seeds, so to speak, so to speak. Uh, crops that will grow in saline Sarah, water. Sarah, forgive me for interrupting you because I want, I want to pick up on something that you have talked about. I want to ask uh, Dawar about this. Sarah is making the point that uh, that has been recorded in several places that Pakistan's uh, con contribution to global, uh, global climate change is actually percentage-wise very, very small. Why is it, do you think, that uh, other governments of other countries which produce more of an impact in, uh, on the climate seem, um, if not unwilling, then certainly um, not in a position to be able to help Pakistan in situations like this or in the preparation of situations like this? Because if Pakistan's having a minimal impact and they're having a more significant impact, one would have thought the burden should I, of responsibility should actually lie with them. Sarah's also already mentioned this, and she is uh, completely 100% correct that it feels very personal. Uh, when we talk about the terms of, in terms of impact, uh, just to give you an idea, the entire, if you put the entire population of Australia on one side and you look in just the people affected, we have more people affected right now. And uh, when talking about responsibility, Pakistan is bearing the brunt of all of this at only 1.2 degrees. That's a global average. And in the 2010 floods, I mean, the average was about one degree increase. Now, even a 0.1 degree increase means for Pakistan, that entire monsoon pattern can change. It will switch its existing uh, path from centuries ago by, for just a little bit of average change. So this is what we really need to be talking about, that 
the emissions of the entire globe have to come down and maybe even 1.5 degrees is untenable for Pakistan. What happens at that point? If we are going to touch 1.5, which is the goal with these net zero targets, which is the goal by for uh, 2050 targets for a lot of countries that it is an accepted norm that we're going to touch the global leverage of 1.5 or even exceed that. That will mean that for millions of people in Pakistan and countries like Pakistan, there will be no shelter. They will they will have to evacuate year after year. And when we talk about evacuation plans and everything, where do countries like Pakistan put 333 million people? There's a, it's not possible at all. It's simply not feasible for countries like us to prepare for such a big, big, big uh, calamity. It's, of course, governance failure if, uh, when we talk about Pakistan being vulnerable or being among the top 10 most, most vulnerable. Part of it's our preparedness. Part of it is governance. Part of it is state capacity and investments in climate resilience. But uh, it, Pakistan simply does not have the resources. Uh, we would gladly spend those resources if we had uh, none of those resources are available to us or have been provided since the Paris Agreement. I want to bring so, in Sarah there. Forgive me for interrupting you, but I, I want to bring in Sarah because she was anxious to make a point there. Yeah, I just wanted to I'm, I just wanted to build a little more on what Gavar is saying. He's absolutely right. But I think what the more important thing right now is, like he's saying, we are going to be this part of the world, Global South and the subcontinent, even Bangladesh, India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, we're going to be experiencing very high temperatures if climate change isn't controlled or rather global warming isn't controlled. And we, that means more exacerbated floods. That means we will be get we will be seeing floods maybe worse than these ones. And what the government really needs to do, and I would like to tie in with your point about why Sherry Rahman really hasn't, or why the government hasn't prepared for climate change, I think it's pertinent, absolutely essential that we start preparing now, today, for, you know, for floods that will be worse than what we're seeing right now. These floods are worse than the 2010 super floods. Mm. The next floods could be worse than this. I want to bring so, in Peter here because he's quite anxious to make a point. Let me just ask you, Peter, given the scale of everything that uh, we have been talking about, are you concerned that organizations like yours will simply reach a point where they cannot cope? Well, it's, it's difficult to say. I think uh, so far we have been able to cope uh, over the many years uh, that we do exist and each and every time we do adapt uh, to the situation. And that, that is what we have to be as humanitarian organizations. We have to be flexible. We have to adapt to the situation. Uh, yes, you can see it. And, and as Sarah also said, the, the situation is getting worse. 20, 2010 uh, mega floods and the 2022 floods, it's much worse. What is going to be next and can we deal with it? Uh, and at the same time, we also have to see like 22 floods now today comes at a time when we, the people and the communities were already very vulnerable. We had, uh, we went through the whole COVID uh, uh, pandemic, which put a economical uh, burden to everybody, to governments, but to the people themselves as well. So people are vulnerable already. So it isn't adding up to, and yes, are we, are we reaching a point that we cannot deal with it anymore? I do not think so. In all the years I have been working uh, in the humanitarian sector, we always manage to deal with it. It is an effort, but we do uh, we do deal with it. And also, we are getting better to a certain extent because technology will help us better. We can do more with with less that we did uh, earlier on. But the point that I wanted to make as well, the discussion is like climate change and that Pakistan actually uh, very low, but has the big burden of the whole climate change and 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 uh, disasters the impact of it. Uh, I think instead of 
pointing fingers. Yes, we have to deal with that. We have to really have to uh, go to the West and say, look, you have to do more to stop it. But I think what we have to do now with these floods, um, 2010, compare what have we done in 2010? How did we cope with the 2010 floods? How did we cope with 2022 floods? What have we learned from 2010 to 22? How do we can how can we do better? And I do believe, talking to my com, com, uh, colleagues here in the office that have been very much involved in the 2010 floods, we have learned a lot. We have actually had better uh, systems in place to respond and to actually keep. Peter, I'm very sorry. Place. I am going to have to ask you to stop there. I'm afraid we have run out of time. But I appreciate you very much for being with us. Thank you to all our guests, uh, Dawar Bhatt, Sarah Hyatt, and Peter Offen. And that's it for the Inside Story podcast. This episode was produced by Carvin Ng, Abdurrahman Wasami, Fungi Ngoyen, Vera Karman, and Gemma Harris. Studio sound was by Sasha Andreevich. The program was edited by Anil Anandinen, Lynn Ngoyen, and Judith Frias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thank you for listening. We're going to be back again on Tuesday.